We're in uh, Colossians chapter 2. We're making our way to the end of this particular section. We have a little bit more to go. I'm going to read the whole section for us this morning. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily, and you have been filled in Him, who is the head of all rule and authority. In Him also you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with Him in baptism, in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God, who raised Him from the dead. And you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Him, having forgiven all our trespasses, by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Of course, in this section where, as I noted last week, he's, he's kind of moving into the, the realm of sanctification, but he's laying the groundwork of, by, of the work of Christ and all of its implications. Uh, he's been talking about how we have been circumcised in the heart through the work of Christ and his death and resurrection. We're continuing that idea this morning, but let us pray. Father, we are all here for a variety of reasons this morning, but our reasons for being here pale in comparison with your reason for bringing us to this place. As the word is preached, we ask that you would accomplish your will and purpose for us this morning. May your word not return void, but may it give life to those who are dead in sins and trespasses. May it give wisdom to those who are confused and full of doubt. May it sanctify those who are dabbling in sin. May it encourage those who are being beaten down by their circumstances. Direct us to the greatness and sufficiency of Christ as he is presented to us in the gospel this morning. For our good and for your glory we ask. Amen. Uh, Perhaps it's one of the oddities of American culture. At least I hope it's an oddity of American culture. We're fascinated with zombies. I don't know why we're fascinated with zombies, but we are. Admit it. Maybe it has something to do with George Romero and all of his uh, cult zombie films back in the 70s, but uh, there are a lot of people who are looking forward to, so to speak, the zombie apocalypse. Uh, There's even targets you can buy if to go shooting, and they're zombies, so you can work on getting the headshot, because of course that's the only way to kill a zombie, is uh, to, you know, get get the head, okay? Uh, The the Walking Dead is a, uh, a big hit on TV these days. You know, if you follow Facebook, people are really excited when a new season of The Walking Dead comes up. Zombies, The Walking Dead, or oddly fascinated by these things. And yet, we don't recognize that there are, in a sense, zombies all around us. The Walking Dead. Spiritually dead. 
People, by and large, are ignorant of their true spiritual condition. Paul here is going to address the previous spiritual condition of the Colossian believers and then say how it is they went from that spiritual condition to their new spiritual condition. And this is fundamental to our understanding of Christianity and the process, the progress that we hope to make in sanctification. The big idea this morning is that condemned sinners, we were given new life in Christ. And it starts with the bad news, which is sort of nestled here in the midst of this good section about how we have been filled with Christ, who has the fullness of deity in Him. Uncircumcised sinners, we were guilty and condemned. When's the last time anyone told you that? It's not really something that we tend to focus upon a lot. Our culture, uh, you know, doesn't want to think about the negative things in life. You know, there's no, everyone's a winner now in sports, you know. Kids' sports oftentimes don't even keep score because we want everyone to feel good about themselves. We want self-esteem, and what Paul is really laying out here is that there is no basis in some ways for our self-esteem. In terms of how we're made in the image of God, there, there's basis for, for positive thought about that, but we also have to reckon with the reality that we are sinners, and that is where Paul goes. He reminds both them and, by extension, us of who they were apart from Christ, predominantly so that they might be filled with gratitude and worship. It is not done to make them feel bad, but it is to remind them from the depths from which God has reached down and grasped them and pulled them up. So this is meant to be part of the good news, not the bad news. But we must reckon with it nonetheless. For he says to them that you were dead in your trespasses. The Greek word that's translated in is usually means in. But it can mean at times because of. It can, it can display a causal relationship. And so if we think of it that way, they are dead on account of or because of their transgressions. That there's a relationship, that their deadness is not merely incidental to how they live. Dead on account of transgressions, but because they're spiritually dead, they commit more transgressions, or trespasses rather. as That's the word Paul uses in this particular place. To trespass. That's a pretty easy word. We see that all the time. I was disappointed when we went to New York that there were changes on the street that my in-laws live on, and there was this one hunting shack that got torn down, and I was disappointed because this hunting shack had about, I think I lost track at about 40 no trespassing signs. (laughs) It was this little tiny shack. I mean, you know, not very big. It seemed like every three feet on this building there was a no trespassing sign. It means you don't belong in a particular place. And so to trespass is to go where you do not belong, to, to go onto property or to a secure area where you do not belong. Morally, it means to do that which you are not supposed to do. To go places you are not supposed to go. And what Paul is saying is that these Colossians had gone many places they were not supposed to go. 
God's moral law is a reflection of God's character. His moral law is not arbitrary. He didn't kind of sit down one day and think, what ten rules can I think up? How can I come up with some laws that will really frustrate human beings? But they're really a reflection of who he is, of his own moral character. And to go outside of his moral character is that place called sin. And so when we move away from acting in a way that is consistent with his character or the law, we transgress, we trespass, we go where we don't belong, and we become guilty. And so they had crossed God's boundaries. He said, don't go here, and they went there. They crossed boundaries in how they spoke. They crossed boundaries in what they did with their sexuality. They crossed boundaries in terms of how they satisfied their various desires and appetites. They crossed boundaries when it came to their anger. They crossed boundaries when it came to their greed and covetousness. They crossed lots of boundaries. And Paul is saying to us as well, we are just like them. We too crossed many boundaries. And the sad thing is that once you cross a boundary... It's really hard to stop crossing that boundary. You know, when, when you have participated in a particular sin, it's a little harder next time to resist that sin. And each time you cross that boundary, it gets easier and easier to go there. Most of us have lived that, especially if you didn't convert until you were an adult, uh, like I did. You understand how hard it is to stop crossing that boundary because it begins to feel like you belong there, right? Part of the reality is that people are really good at hiding their problems, and that ultimately, people are, the people you meet are more messed up than you think they are. And you're also more messed up than you think you are. Think what happened this week. We got basically the great unveiling in two big media stories that broke, uh, at least the ones I'm familiar with. The first has to do with seven-time Tour de France winner Lance Armstrong, the great cyclist who, you know, I don't know all that much about him. I know he dated Sheryl Crow. I know he won a lot of races. I know he was on Wheaties, and I know he was, uh, you know, he had cancer. Don't underestimate the power of Wheaties, dude. Um, <laughs> But, you know, he, he struggled with cancer, and he, he came back, and it was after that. So there's a sense in which there's this great story of triumph that sort of gets attached to Lance Armstrong. And what happened is he went to the, the, the confessional of our day, the couch of Oprah, and admitted <laughs> that he lied, that he actually did take all of the drugs and performance-enhancing drugs that he was accused of taking. And that he had been living a life of systematic deceit. And it's not just that. I mean, I, most of us probably would, yeah, you know, he probably is doping. But the things that uh, I kind of learned were more about who he really is and how mean and ruthless and cruel of a human being he was. The lives that he destroyed through, through lawsuits. These were things that I didn't know about. Other people may have known. But there was a great revealing. He was more messed up than I thought he was. The other story was um, 
Heisman Trophy runner-up, Manti Teow. Not so much, wow, how evil he is, but wow, how pathetic he is. To be duped for years into thinking that you had a girlfriend and to find out that it was all a mirage. That not only does she not like you, she doesn't exist. She was a hoax perpetrated upon him. Sad. What can be done to us at times? But then you have the flip side of that. When, when he realizes that he has been duped, he continued to perpetuate the hoax. When asked about it later on, he, he kind of played along with the game, and so he became a party to the whole thing. Do you see how messed up we are? Sometimes we believe our own press, the front, the face that we present to everyone else, that we're already we're all right, you know. But Paul says, not only did they trespass, but they were dead. What does that mean for someone to be dead in their trespasses? We have to go all the way back to Genesis chapter 2, where God gives the, the prohibition and the penalty. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, when they ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they became aware of a couple of things. They suddenly realized, I'm naked, and that's not good. Okay, Because now they felt a sense of shame. It wasn't their nakedness that was the problem, but it was now that there was an internal problem that had emerged, and now they see, they sense guilt, and they want to hide, and they're wanting to hide their nakedness as a symptom of their shame and their guilt. When God, when they hear God coming, they hide because they don't want to be found by God because they know intuitively that they're guilty and that He will not be pleased with them. God in His mercy did not kill them, put them to death then and there, but they were, they were placed under this death sentence. Physically, they would die, but there was also a spiritual transaction that took place. And so now, they did not experience the fellowship with God that they once had. So first of all, we see that they're under the death sentence. They're condemned for their guilt. This is what Paul means right here. He repeats this in essentially in Romans 6. For the wages of sin is death. The due punishment for our trespasses is death. Secondly, that also means that we are, or they were, and we are too, apart from Christ, unresponsive to God. It's sort of like what happens when finally Michael casts Fredo out of the family in the Godfather trilogy. You're dead to me. And there's a sense in which we say that to God. You're dead to me. You don't matter to me. You're not important to me. I'm not going to respond to you. You might send me a letter, but I'm going to throw it in the trash. You might call on the phone, but I'm going to hang up. Or I'll check caller ID and see. I'm not answering it at all. Right to voicemail, right to delete, gone. This idea that we as sinners 
are unresponsive to God. We are unable to respond to the gospel with faith. We have no desire to truly obey because it is not prompted by faith and by love. We might act in self-interest and not, not trespass certain ways because we don't want to get caught. But it's not out of a love for God. We're unresponsive to God. This is part of why Sinclair Ferguson says that there are no resources in us by nature from which new and holy life can spring, because we're dead. Not only that, but Paul says that there is a record of debt that stood against us. Okay, Now Paul has, has moved from talking about you, Colossians, and now he includes himself. Okay, He recognizes that he himself is a sinner as well. This record of debt stood against us. There's a big IOU, so to speak. That exists. In other words, our sin creates a debt with God that keeps growing because of our trespasses. It's sort of like the federal debt. It seems to keep growing and growing and growing into an astronomical number that none of us can really fathom. I can't really fathom $16 trillion. That's beyond me. I mean, I, I see a stack of money for the adoptions, you know, and $4,000, and I'm like, wow, that's a whole lot of bills right there. I can't conceive of trillions of dollars. That's like our guilt before God. It keeps growing and growing to an astronomical rate that, that we can't even really begin to fathom. But our debt with God is not a financial debt. You know, we, we can't create a trillion-dollar coin to pay off our guilt with God. Okay, can't happen because it's not really a financial debt. It's a debt that we can't pay even though we often try to pay with good works and sacrifice and not eating meat on Fridays or whatever it is that we might do. Paul continues, and he says, And the uncircumcision of your flesh. They were not circumcised in flesh or in heart. Paul is saying that they are or were unregenerate. But Paul is also referring essentially to the fact that they were Gentiles. And as we see in Ephesians 2, Paul then, uh, after this parallel passage, goes into this great discussion of of how the Gentiles and the Jews were, because of the Old Testament law, hostile towards one another, but they have been reconciled in Christ. And he's alluding to that here. You uncircumcised Philistines, or as my professor, Dr. Nicole, would often say, uncircumcised Philistines. He had this accent that was rather cute. And, uh, uncircumcised. You don't fit. You don't belong. You don't have hope. You're dirty. He's saying, that's who you were. You were Gentile sinners. At least Jewish sinners had hope. But Gentile sinners had nothing. They had no knowledge of the covenants. They had no knowledge of the promises. They were excluded. They're unable to love, unable to trust and obey God. One of the interesting things in the the TV series, uh, The Walking Dead is the revelation that everybody has the virus. Everybody will become 
The Walking Dead. When you die, within minutes, you will join the number of the zombies. None of us is exempt from sin. No one was ever born, aside from Jesus, who was not characterized by what Paul has just said. You can't say, oh, I'm different. You are the same. So all who are not united to Christ live in a state of guilt and condemnation and without hope. But here's the good news. In his death, Jesus removed our guilt and condemnation. Paul painted this gloomy backdrop in order to help us to see the great news of the gospel, the great glory of Christ in what he has done for us. Because this death sentence that is upon our heads has been fulfilled, has been paid by Jesus as our substitute and our representative. Okay? I mentioned you can't, you can't do the trillion dollar coin, but I, some of you will remember Kobe Bryant with his trouble in Colorado. How did he get himself out of his trouble in Colorado? Well, when his wife was concerned, it was one big fat diamond ring. We can't do that. We can't buy our way out. We can't work our way out. Christ is the only one who can get us out. And so Paul says that we have, that he has forgiven us all our trespasses. Okay, it's not saying that God winked and, and turned a blind eye to our trespasses. It means God forgave them. And one of the, the pictures of um, forgiveness is of, of forgiving a debt, releasing someone from a debt. So again, there's that financial language that's there that ties in with the, what's going on with the debts earlier. Okay? But remember, this forgiveness is not automatic. As we talked about with uh, the, the baptism and the circumcision of the, of the heart, that there, was, there had to be faith to experience the reality of it. There had to be faith in the great work of God. And so let's not put that out of mind. We need to keep that as we look at this continuation of Paul's thought here this morning. We must trust in Christ and in the powerful working if we are to be forgiven. There's no forgiveness apart from that. But it's not our forgiveness that gets us, I mean, it's not our um, faith that gets us forgiven. It's just the instrument that God uses. Let's pause here for a second. Because again, Paul says our trespasses. He doesn't say just, you know, meaning he's including Timothy and himself in this. But he says all all of our trespasses, not just some of our trespasses. It's not like Jesus takes care of the hard stuff for you and now you've got to take care of the small stuff, okay? It's all of our trespasses. In other words, none of you has sinned so big and so bad that Christ's work is not sufficient for you. I don't know all of your sins. Some of you I do. I know all my sins, I think. There's none of them that are so big and so bad that Christ is not sufficient to deliver us. And so when we, when we reckon with our sin and come to realization and conviction of our sin, let us not go to despair thinking, you know, for instance, 
you know, I have all of these felonies against me. I'm in big trouble. Christ is sufficient. We need not despair. The flip side of that is there is no sin of yours that is so small that it does not require the death of Jesus for your forgiveness. There's no misdemeanors in God's eyes that, you know, you can kind of get away with or that, uh, you know, you can kind of somehow make up apart from uh, Christ himself. Jesus had to die for those too. So we shouldn't be filled with spiritual pride. I've mentioned in the past that when you look at Amy's life, as a young adult, in my life as a young adult, you find a stark difference in character. Okay? There's no cause for me to despair, and there's no cause for her to be self-righteous. For both of us needed the work of Christ. Both of us. There's no room for pride amongst us. There's no room for despair. Think of David for a moment. Murderer. Adulterer. Two of the big ten. And as Luther would said, in order to break any of the other ten, you have to break the first one. So he gets three. In that one event of his life, but his sin was not so great that God could not forgive him. In Christ. Not only that, but Paul says to clarify that the canceling of the record of debt, and that word of uh, canceling can also be have that idea of of to wipe something clean or to blot something out. Okay. In other words, it no longer exists. It's almost like the delete button was hit on your, on your um, liabilities before God. Gone. They've been erased. Can't be read anymore. And so Christ bore the debt of our sin that stood against us and condemned us. There's something really nice about the old way of paying bills when you'd get that stamp. And I don't know why it was in red, because it was good news. Paid in full. Ah, good news. Christ has paid it in full. Sinclair Ferguson notes that when Jesus was on trial before the Sanhedrin, he had, there were two charges that were made against him. Blasphemy, by claiming he was God that he and, he and the Father were one, and treason. And it's appropriate that he was charged with those two things because those, all of our trespasses and sins can be summed up as either blasphemy or treason. Most of them are both. Because we presume to be God of our own lives, to be the arbiter of what is right and what is wrong. We Blaspheme God when we do that. And we are treasonous when we trespass because we're disobeying the king. So Jesus dying as a supposed blasphemer and treasonous person died for all of our sins. 
so that that record of debt could be removed from us. And how he did this, Paul says, that it was nailed to the cross. It stood as the list of charges against us. This is what they would do when they would crucify someone, is they would nail their sins against the state upon the cross where everyone would know why it is that person is there. And now we know why Jesus is there. Because we are blasphemers and we are guilty of treason. And he's died, he died there for us. It was nailed there, lifted up, taken away, so it never, no more rests upon us. He paid the penalty for our fornication, for our deceit, for our greed, for our racism, for our selfishness, for our gossip, and all of the other sins that we're guilty of. He paid for it. So there's two things, well, there's a couple things that flow out of this, and one of them is to stop letting your past sins give you identity. There's a clean break. God doesn't hold those sins over you anymore if you are in Christ Jesus. He's not going, well, you know, Steve, remember that day 15 years ago? I still don't know if I trust you yet. And you know what? If you prove me wrong, I'm going to bring that back up again. He's not like sometimes what we do in our disagreements with one another where we bring up past sins. We get, as it says, historical on people. You know, we're hysterical and then we get historical. Okay, you know, um, I'm so glad Amy and I don't do that. That's a trap so many people in marriage fall into as they bring up past grievances and they bring them right back into the present and it just makes everything messier. And God doesn't do that. Paid in full. He means it. As it testifies, I will remember your sins no more. Meaning, not that God forgets anything, but he's not going to bring it back up again. It's not going to stand between you and him again. He's not going to want you to, to wallow in shame over that again. It was paid for. In Christ. And so sometimes what happens to us is that we, we cling to that old identity. Those, those sins that marked our lives, the ones that were really prevalent. And this, this often happens like when you're talking with people with addictions. That, there's a danger in, um, how addictions are often approached from, you know, outside of a Christian perspective. Um, you may have an addiction, but you are not the addiction. And when you start talking like you are, whether it's an alcoholic, a sex addict, shopaholic, or whatever it is you want to be, stick a holic before or after. If that's who you think you are, that's what you're going to do. That's what you're going to act out. And so Paul wants them to know that you once were that, as he says in, uh, in Corinthians, but now you are no longer that. You have been washed. You have been justified. In other words, stop living like you are that because you're not that in Christ. Okay. We're forgiven. That means that we're free from guilt and fear in our relationship with God. That means now we're able to walk with God in righteousness because of gratitude and love. Not, how can I stay on his good side? How can I make sure I don't get whacked upside the head? 
The, the legalism and the fear that characterizes so many in Christ is completely unbiblical. And so Jesus' death removes our guilt and condemnation. We obey out of love and gratitude. Thirdly, by His resurrection, we've been given new life. Jesus dealt with our transgressions in the death sentence, but he's now, is, Paul is saying, He also deals with our unresponsiveness. He deals with the uncircumcision of our hearts that we talked about last week. And He says that God made you alive together with Him. In other words, when Jesus was physically raised from the dead, God raised all those who were spiritually dead, who are united to Christ. Remember, in the movies and on TV, there's only one way to deal with a zombie. Shoot it in the head. Or knock its head off. But Christ does not kill us. He died for us that he might give us life. Jesus doesn't kill the walking dead. He brings them to life. Rossi Sproul, in commenting about the doctrine of regeneration, says, in order for one who is dead to the things of God to come alive to God, something must be done to him and for him. Dead men cannot make themselves come alive. So that is why we have to be, God has to make us alive together with Christ because we cannot make ourselves alive. We can't fix our problem. We have to look to Christ. And what we find is that His resurrection is the basis for our two resurrections. Yes, two resurrections. First, we're born again or regenerated. As a result of our union with Him, we are spiritually resurrected. We have life in Christ. We experience the circumcision of the heart that is necessary to love and obey God. And it's because we have been raised in this way, as Paul says in Romans 6, that we now have power to walk in obedience, this newness of life, precisely because we're united to Christ by faith. There's a new principle and power at work in you if you have been raised in Christ. It's not just that you have been forgiven, but also because united to Him, you have newness of life. You have ability to obey. Which we need to remember when we move into sanctification more fully in the future. Okay. Secondly, we will be physically resurrected and receive eternal bodies when Christ returns. That's all rooted in His resurrection. He is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the first fruits of the resurrection for this very purpose. And so we have hope in this life. We're going to be transformed. We're not, to, we're not going to continue to walk in the ways of those who are the sons of disobedience. We're not going to continue to walk as if we're under the power of the prince of the air. We're not going to continue to do that. There's a transformation that takes place because we've been raised up with Jesus. But there's also the not yet aspect of this. 
We have hope for the life to come. Glorification when we finally no longer struggle with sin. Because now, even though we have this new principle, we still struggle. We still stumble. We still fall. But we get back up. But then there'll be no more stumbling. No more falling. Glorified, we will be as He is. No longer prone to wander. No longer prone to sin. So Christ's work already has great benefit for us now, but we look forward to the the yet to come, which is even greater than what we have now. And so when people are dead, whether they walk around or not, we tend to think that the game is over. Dead people can't do anything, much less make themselves alive. But the gospel includes the great truth that God makes spiritually dead people alive through the resurrection of Christ. Christ, who has removed the charges against them by his death, continues his great work of salvation by making them alive so they can walk in this newness of life instead of in their trespasses and sins. And so I want you to think, are you walking in the light of what Christ has done? Or are you still walking in a false, illegitimate sense of condemnation and guilt? Are you still walking in light of what you have done? I'm assuming you're a Christian when I say that. In other words, are you living in light of the clean break Christ has made for your sin? Let's pray. Father, it is uh, sometimes difficult for us to grasp all of what Christ did on the cross. And and difficult for us to really personalize it in the sense of um, owning it, moving it out of our head and into our heart. When we start to live in accordance with, with what we believe. But when we start to live in accordance with what has been done for us. So Father, I ask that your spirit would be working in, in your people this week. Bringing them back to this. In the months to come, bringing us back to this, that we would um, truly understand what has been done for us so that we can begin to, to walk differently, to live differently. Uh, in a a way that that pleases you more, that glorifies you more. But this morning I ask that you'd fill us with, with thanksgiving as we looked again at who we are apart from Jesus, that we might be filled with gratitude for what he has taken away from us. We ask this in Christ's name, amen.